This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Julie, an associate at Research in Practice, and today I'm talking to Trina Robson, who is one of the directors of Love Barra Families. And this is a project that's really close to my heart as it's based in the area where I grew up and I lived till I was in my 20s. So hello and welcome, Trina. Really glad to have you here. Hi, thank you. Pleased to be here. Yeah, great. So I wonder if you could start by giving a little bit of context around um, Barrow in Furness and how Love Barrow Family started. So I guess one of the things that I've been thinking quite a lot about recently is the significance of myself being Barovian. So I was born in Barrow, brought up in Barrow. Um, And when, so I've been a social worker for many years. And when we started Love Barrow Families, one of the things we wanted to do was to make sure that we built on what was already here. So in Barrow, there is a very strong sense of belonging still. Um, we have a, a football team that are doing really well at the moment and uh, have a, a really big following. Um, and we, p- people here tend to be uh, very proud um, and, th- and they're good people. And I think as I've travelled around, particularly with Love Barrow Families, I've discovered that not everywhere is like that. So it feels quite important to highlight it at the beginning. So Barrow in Furness is, it's a largely white, uh, I think it's something like 90 odd percent white um, population, population of around 70,000. Um, we're on the northwest, northwestern tip of Markham Bay. Uh, we have a history of shipbuilding and steelworks in the town. Uh, things over the years have really changed so that whereas once upon a time nearly everybody was employed by um, Vickers, uh, Vickers is now BAE and it's there's a, there's a lot of contractors in BAE now so Barrow's changed quite considerably. We have a lot of people coming in from outside and we have a number of hotels that have sprung up all over the town which has not really been known before. So we've got a big Holiday Inn in the middle of the town centre, Premier Inn, and they're booked up by the people who work in BAE. So for people who come from Barrow, it's quite different to how it used to be. Uh, We often hit the news for things that are not uh, very helpful. So drug addiction has been one of those. We hit the national news around the um, figures of drug addiction and drug dealing uh, in Barrow. Uh, The figures for child protection, children looked after, child in need, are all high, I suppose, like many northern working class towns, uh, we struggle. Um, the town centre doesn't exist in the way that it did once upon a time. So that sense that I grew up with of people coming together is not really there now. Um, and it feels like one of the things that's happened over the last few years is that people want to come in and fix us and do things to us and build community. And I feel quite strongly as a Barovian, and I know there's lots of other people who do as well, that we know what the answers are already. We've got them. And it's not a case of somebody teaching them. It's a case of allowing them to be there um, and trusting the people in Barrow to, to know how to look after each other. Um, yeah. 
So exactly. yeah, so that that's a really good introduction to the uh, the area, and um, it sounds like it's changed quite a lot since since I lived in the area. So that's quite interesting for me personally. So, given that um, context, when and how did you start up Loveborough fam- Families, and what was the impetus behind that? So. When I reflect back, I think that the early years, well, the, the time when I was a social worker, when I was young in my 20s, had quite a profound effect on me. So people like Bob Holman, who was a community worker who worked on the East House estate in Glasgow, um, a very poor estate, and he lived there and worked there. So it was a, it was a it's what we would now call a community-based social work model, I guess. Well, I remember those things, and they were the things that influenced me right in the beginning. So I knew that existed, and I knew that um, although... So so when Love Barrow Family started, it was 2013-14. I was working at the time in the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. I'd worked previously in social services. We'd had a number of serious case reviews. There was really high anxiety... Um, around risk. Uh, There was uh, local uh, professionals from CAMS and from social services who had been blamed and shamed in the local paper for things going wrong. Um, It felt like the services were really fragmented and they tightened thresholds as well. So there was families bouncing between um, mental health services and child protection and lots of uh, disagreement about who should pick it up and what should happen. Um, so that that and alongside that, uh, I was having some personal experiences, which again have been important and they feel important to talk about um, because uh, I was a foster parent a long time ago and I was involved with adult mental health services because um, in my role as supporting the, the, the woman that I'd fostered when I was younger and I was looking after her daughter. And it was a really powerful, difficult um, environment to be in. Uh, And I just started thinking about whether there was a possibility to do something different. There was lots of discussion at the time around innovation. Uh, I worked for a health trust and one of the directors in the health trust um, was a GP who had done lots of community work and there were some bursaries, there was a possibility of applying for bursaries to what, what they were calling innovate, innovation, innovation bursaries. And so I talked to John, John Howarth, um, and he supported the idea of uh, working with some families locally to try and find out from them uh, what their views were, what they thought would work, what wouldn't, and then um, trying to pull that together into some kind of plan that we could use to reorganise was really reorganising public services. That's what we were talking about at the time. Uh, and one of the things we did was we we really wanted to make sure that what we did was backed up with kind of evidence and theory. Um, and in some ways, it was kind of a lifetime's work. But one of the things we did was we used the New Economic Foundation's definition of co-production to inform what we were doing. And it, I was re- I'm really pleased looking back that we did that because I think... Um, Co-production became one of those words that was bandied around a lot and used in different ways. But for us, we were very clear about what it meant. And there was a very strong sense of it being about equality and valuing what people do as work. 
Um, so asset-based, really, valuing people's assets. Um, so yeah. that, that's really interesting. Can, if I can just come in about ask about the, the co-production. So how, how did you do that then to make sure that you were really engaging with the community? So because I've worked a long time in Barrow um, and I have a number of colleagues who have also um, got good relationships with, with me and have, have worked in Barrow for, for years, we decided, um, well, here we would ask seven families seven families who, at the time, everybody was talking about complex families. That was the kind of label that was being used. So we just, myself and my colleague, approached seven families who had all had different experiences of services. So we had, one of them was a foster family. Um, uh, we had a, a couple of families who had been really heavily involved with mental health services and adult mental health and children had diagnoses and things. And we had families who had had children taken away, families who were, um, children were on the child protection register. So we tried to get a real kind of spread. And uh, we had, we facilitated, myself and my colleague, Alison Tooby, we facilitated three meetings with the group of families and three meetings with a group of colleagues from all the different agencies that worked with families. And we asked them to think about, um, well, essentially, what was their, what were their top five areas? What were the top five things that we should focus on? And then we brought them together for two sessions and involved some of the senior managers, some of the directors from health to support that. And then we wrote a plan we wrote a plan of what we wanted to do mm-hmm. and there was five principles so one was uh, a reorganization of mainstream services these were all things that families had highlighted mm-hmm. so a reorganization of mainstream services so that we co-located what we called at the time a wraparound team in the town center it's interesting the language because i i always felt that health and social care had very different ways of describing the same thing and wrap around was, I suppose it's a bit like the idea of think family. The think family agenda was around at the time as well. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so a reorganisation of mainstream services to have an actual team. So not a virtual team, a real team co-located in the middle of the town centre. And that would include uh, everything, really. Social work, adult mental health, child mental health, um, whatever was needed. And uh, one assessment. So families often say, don't they, that they really get tired of telling the story over and over again to different people. And often it's quite a emotive story to tell as an impact on people. And again, because I'd worked in social services and I'd worked in health, I was aware that most kind of assessments that are used cover similar things. They might use different language, but they're looking at similar things. So we worked together as a team. We had an adult psychiatrist from Adult Mental Health who was helping us. And we looked at, we just looked at all the different assessments. So when somebody comes into a service, what are the questions that are asked? And we brought them all together into one document so that we could just use it as one assessment. And the other thing that we really wanted to do was use, um, well, we, we used the DMM. So we used Pat Crittenden's work to uh, assess adults using the adult attachment interview and children using the school age assessment which myself and my colleague were both trained in and the reason we chose Pat Crittenden's work was because we felt really strongly that we needed to understand really understand what was going on 
um, for families and for parents when they came to the attention of statutory services. Mm -hmm. And the adult attachment interview in particular is, I don't know of anything better in terms of um, it's an empathic process and it gives people an opportunity to talk about their lives and it identifies the particular things that are causing trouble. So a lot of the families that I worked with when I was in CAMS, there would be a suggestion that parents went for counselling or even in child protection um, in uh, care proceedings. And I always used to think, but what are they, what are they going into counselling for? And I liked the AAI because it, it focuses on the particular things that parents are having trouble with, not everything because we're all on that continuum somewhere. So it helps to highlight things that sometimes are, are not evident to the person. And it's usually around unresolved trauma and loss. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the dynamic maturational model, the attachment assessments are, were a really important tool uh, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also, I'm just going back to the principles, uh, assets and skills we really wanted to build on what was already here in Barrow so for example our first office we were given it free of charge in a local school um, and we just somebody came and put some work surfaces up for us around the edge of the, the room so we could use our laptops our computers and we had a really big old table wooden table in the middle of the room and we just did everything in that room parents when they came and dropped the kids off they would come up the stairs and meet with us we held the uh, car group meetings we more or less did everything really from what that from that one room uh, yeah so assets and skills and we wanted to make sure that we focused on the assets and skills and strengths that families brought not just the problems because some of the families that we worked with particularly in the early days that's what they've been used to. They've been used to people focusing on the things that they didn't do very well. And one of the things I'd learned, again, through the adult attachment interview, really, is that it's as important, if not more important, to look for the gems, the little bits of magic dust that are in everybody's histories. You know, everybody has some experiences of, of love and even if they're tiny and it's just as important to find those and bring those to people's attention and uh, have them acknowledged as it is to look at the problems so assets were really important and also the other thing was about trying to help people to build capabilities so there's a guy called Sen who developed something called the capabilities framework uh, that's been used quite a lot in community development and I didn't know about it when we first started Love Barrow Families, but I've thought about it quite a lot since. And it's about it's about helping people to develop capabilities, but it's also recognising that we don't all have what we need in order to be able to do the things that we want to do. So if you can't afford a pair of um, trainers, you can't go running if you want to run. Uh, those kinds of those kinds of things and so we wanted to make sure that we were paying attention to all of those things particularly for parents so that we could build step by step we could build them step by step to get to where they wanted to be really and we called it at the time the zone of proximal development child development term so it's very much like you know how children when they're small parents stretch them to the next little task that they can achieve so like when they're learning but not too far and, and what we found um, in Love Our Families in the early days that was when we were sent people like we had 
somebody from the DWP who used to come in uh, and advise and set things up for parents. It was often out of their zone of proximal development. So they might go for an interview for a training course and they just came back deflated because it was too much. It was overwhelming. So that's been a really important uh, learning for us and particularly important because some of the uh, parents that we worked with initially are now working for us. And that's, I think that's been the key and it almost, well, it's still the key that um, is always trying to just stay within that zone that people can manage, but, but allow them to push a little bit further as well. So, so what kinds of things did you include in that building capabilities? What kind of work did you do with the families to do that? So, well, when we first started, we weren't very good at it, to be honest. We kind of missed it because we'd come, well, myself and Alison had come from a social work background. So although we wanted to focus on assets, we forgot to ask the questions in the assessments right at the beginning. We eventually went back and started to ask parents right at the very beginning in child protection, case conferences, wherever, whatever meetings we were in what they were interested in, what their aspirations were. And it was amazing what people said. So we had one mum who was, um, she was trying to get her child back, uh, returned to her after being in care. And he, he, he did come back to her, but she um, was interested in archaeology. And she would never, she'd never told anybody that. And we have a couple of projects locally that do stuff um, that, 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 that meant that she could go and kind of explore a little bit and try and find out what what it was that she was interested in particular. So that we have a a member of staff now who, when she first came to us, one of her children was in care, children were on the child protection register, she'd been in care herself. Uh, She's got a five-year plan at the moment to become a child and family support worker. So she's mm-hmm. currently works for Loughborough Families as a kind of front of house, welcoming people. Um, and because she's been through the service, she's very well able to offer people what she had because she knows what it felt like. And it kind of shows um, a gradual um, gaining in confidence, I guess, for, for, yeah. for people. Instead of being seen as um, a deficit and lacking in skills, mm-hmm. they're building their own skills, which yeah. in turn can um, help to improve their confidence. So that seems very valuable. Um, and I think one of the things that's happening, I know we're going to talk a bit about Love Barrow Together, but one of the things that's happening with Love Barrow Together, which is kind of uh, grown out of Love Barrow families, is that as a borough council, we're looking at trying to do things differently. And one of the things that I've done with Love Barrow families over the years is used small amounts of funding to help people to take that next step. And it's amazing really what can happen because we spend so much money on services and, and trying to be helpful to people. And yet, if we try to do things a little bit differently, it costs a lot less and the outcomes are just amazing. You know, if so, just getting it right, like I said, at the moment that somebody needs it, you know, we have a dad who um, is about to do some asset-based community development training uh, and we've paid for him to do that. So it's, it's trying to just find those things that, it's difficult really because it's very individual. It's very much tailored to each person. What works for one person doesn't work for the other. But the outcomes are, are, are amazing for families who don't normally A, do very well or B, get a very good service. And that access to funds at a very early stage, you know, is obviously very beneficial because it, it's, it saves a lot of money further downstream. 
Yeah, it does. And those people, they don't have money. Do you know, like those of us who work, I mean, I'm not rich by any means, but I can do more or less what I want to do. You know, some of the families, particularly in Barrow at the moment, poverty-wise, people, £200 to somebody can enable them to set up a little business. You know, it can completely change somebody's life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, um, you... I'm, I'm, I've lost where we are now with the top five things. I, have, yeah, I, too, I think I've more or less said everything that I wanted to say about the top. No, the one thing I didn't say was that when we met with the, the original two groups, the, the practitioners group were very um, kind of insistent that we needed qualified, experienced safe hands to hold the team if we were going to do things differently within an environment that was anxiety driven it was going to be only it was going to be difficult and the people in the team needed to feel that they were in safe hands so that's always been something that we've we've had people like me Alison we had a really good family therapist who had had lots of experience who can who do the supervision but um do lots of things really one of them is to try and make sure that the theory is, is brought into practice day to day so trying to translate some of the information from the assessments into so what does that mean when a volunteer is going to help them with the washing or something you know so very much trying to uh, use the assessments practically it's mm-hmm. not psychologically so um, if I understand it, then what you're saying is you have this this core team with um, some background in the theory and the practice, but then you have a, a core group of volunteers as well who work with the community. Is that right? Yeah. So many of our parents and families volunteer to do various things. Or you, I wouldn't even call it volunteering, really. It's assets. It's sharing assets with each other. And when we first started, we called it a time bank. We don't use that that same terminology now, but the idea that um, one person has a skill that they can share and help someone and then that another person can repay that with their skills or um, the time bank is just a way of kind of logging all of that. And then, um, so we have one, we have a dad who's really good at uh, practical tasks. So he decorating he'll go and decorate somebody's house and then if he needs a little bit of help with benefits or something somebody else will help him with that mm-hmm. so it, it it's uh it is volunteering but I, just, I think volunteering also sticks a label on it that kind of professionalizes it and what what i think is important about barrow is what i said at the beginning really we know how to do this we know how to be good neighbors to each other and what we what what the services need to do is trust that and allow people to do it. Yeah, I like that. Um, good neighbours and and share sharing what your skills are with, with other people who, who need your help with something, and, and then getting something in return. And that seems like a really really good model and very very worthwhile. for listening to this research in practice podcast we hope you've enjoyed it why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on twitter tweet us at researchip.com